Well, let me say it again, if I may. Happy New Year. Wow. To be starting off the new year on Sunday in church with our spiritual family. Is there a better way to start it? I don't know. Did you survive Christmas? Here we are. Got through it. I am thrilled today to announce our new study, Divine Servant. All this year, we're going to be going through the book of Mark, and we're going to take this study in two sections. We'll cover the first eight chapters up to the summer months, and at that point, we'll break and we'll go into our elder series, and then we'll return to Mark in the fall, and the plan, all our plans always change, but our plan is to finish Mark by the end of the year. I'm really excited about this. And also, just to let you know, throughout the winter and spring months, we're going to periodically take a break from Mark, and we're going to do a mini-series that I've entitled Church Basics. And in this series, we'll touch on topics such as making disciples, the four pillars, small groups, and church leadership. So it's going to be an exciting year. I can't wait to see what God is going to do in our church through the series and through the different ministries we have going on. But let's go ahead and start the book of Mark. Like I said, I've, I've entitled our series Divine Servant. The book of Mark, simply put, this is going to blow your mind, is about Jesus. You knew that. In fact, each of the four Gospels is about Jesus, but each of the four Gospels highlights something different about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Mark focuses on Jesus' authority and on his servanthood. His authority, of course, has come from above. He's divine. But at the same time, we see Jesus as a servant. Throughout the study, you'll see that he touches lives, he prepares his disciples, and ultimately, he obeys the Father and willingly goes to the cross. The book of Mark begins with these words in verse 1 of chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Clearly, Mark's focus from verse 1 is on Jesus. And our message this morning focuses on the identity of Jesus Christ. See, the use of the word gospel here refers to the good news concerning Jesus. And that good news includes his works and his words. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Mark begins his gospel by showing the audience who Jesus is. Another popular thing to, or another thing to point out in this first verse is the word Christ. It's been said many times from this pulpit, but just by way of reminder, Christ is the Greek equivalent of Messiah, the anointed one. It's a title. Jesus is the one the Old Testament prophesied about who would come, liberate Israel, and set up his kingdom, which would last forever. And that's what the Jews were looking for at this time. And that's who Jesus is, but we on this side of the cross, we see that Jesus' plans involved much more than was realized at the time. Another identifying marker we see from verse 1 is the phrase, Son of God. Right away, Mark points to the identity of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. Now, in biblical times, the firstborn son was of special significance. He was expected to be the next head of the family. So, by being called the Son of God, Jesus is aligning himself with the Father. 
And that's even more evident throughout the Gospels. In fact, in the Gospel of John chapter 5, the Jews are angry at him because he calls God his own father. We see this in John 5.18. You can read this on the screen. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Thus, to say of Jesus that he is the Son of God is to identify him with the Father. Right away, the book of Mark, the author is claiming that Jesus is divine. The first 12 verses we're going to get into, they act as a kind of prologue to the book. And as you read them, you might notice there's kind of an abrupt feel. In fact, that's Mark's style. He writes in, a, in an abrupt way. It's, it's very fast-paced. The book moves rapidly from story to story. There's, there's not always a lot of detail on what's going on. In fact, there's a word that Mark uses a lot. It's the word euthus in Greek, and it's translated immediately. We'll see that word a lot throughout the gospel. Mark will write, immediately this happened, or this happened immediately. In fact, Mark's abruptness goes all the way through the book, even up to the very end. We'll see at the end of this year that the ending of the book is abrupt. It almost feels incomplete, but we'll get to that in about 12 months. The author of Mark is actually anonymous. Now, traditionally, the authorship has been attributed to John Mark, you may remember, who traveled along with Paul and abandoned them on their first missionary journey, but then he came back and had a relationship with, with Peter. They served together. And there's evidence to suggest that. And there's even evidence to suggest that John Mark and Peter worked together, that, that John actually wrote down the, the, the events from his gospel from what Peter had dictated. But it's important to remember something. The author of this book, there's evidence to this, and there's church tradition that it's John Mark, but it may not have been Mark. We don't have any definitive evidence to say for absolute 100% sure that it was Mark. Now, the traditional date for this book is placed after Peter's death at the hand of Nero around 64, 65 AD. There's been other dates that have been suggested, but the material that's presented in the book of Mark makes sense with that date, 64, 65 AD, because of the persecution that the church faced during that time in history. It is likely that Mark wrote to Gentile Christians, particularly in the city of Rome. The emperor Nero, you might remember this from history, had begun his reign and persecution of the church was rampant. Many of the original eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus, who had seen what he had done, who had seen his death, who had seen his resurrection, many of them were being martyred. The church faced great challenges during this time. And so the book of Mark may have been written as a way to preserve Jesus' life before the eyewitnesses were gone. Also, Mark wants to remind his readers that persecution was promised by Jesus Christ. We'll get to that when we reach Matthew cha or Mark chapter 13. Jesus told them that troubling times would come. So part of the reason for Mark being written may have been to encourage the Christians who were reading this and to remind them Jesus promised this type of persecution would come. One last thing I want to say before we dive into the text. The temptation that we have as humans when we think about Jesus as a savior is that we want him or I'm sorry, as a servant is that we want him to serve us and be our savior from all our discomforts. 
me say that again. Our temptation is to look to Jesus as a servant to save us from our discomforts. That's our temptation. We want a Savior who gives us everything we want. And we're actually going to see that in the text with the attitudes of the disciples and the crowds that surround Jesus. But you see, Jesus did come to serve, but not to remove our discomforts. He didn't come to give us all our every desire. He came to serve us ultimately by taking our penalty on the cross. He came to serve us so that we could be offered what we truly need, forgiveness, redemption. It's sad to say, but it's true that we as humans are often offended by this idea that we need a Savior because we really want to save ourselves. Even as Christians, we go back to this idea of trying to save ourselves over and over again when the solution to our every problem is in the gospel. So throughout this year, as we work through the book of Mark, make it your aim to see in what ways you rely on self rather than God. How are you trying to be your own savior in this life and how can you instead trust in your savior Let this be a year of change as you and I together learn to depend more and more on Jesus' work, not our own. Key verse for the book of Mark would be found in chapter 10, verse 45. You can read this on the screen. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So with that thought, let's dive back into verse 1 and let's read the text. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Within this prologue of the book of Mark, Jesus is introduced, and we catch a glimpse of his identity. Remember, Mark's trying to establish who Jesus is right away. So we're looking at the identity of Jesus Christ, and there are three elements that we see from the text that give testimony to the identity of Jesus Christ. Those elements come from John the Baptist, God the Father, and Jesus' victory during his temptation. So this morning, those are the three things that I want to expound on as we look at the identity of Jesus. The first testimony to the identity of Jesus is this, the ministry of John the Baptist. That's your first point. The first testimony of the identity of Jesus is this, the ministry of John the Baptist. Within each story that Mark records, Jesus is always present, always present except twice. Here, when we're talking about John the Baptist, and again, in chapter 6, Mark will record the death of John the Baptist. Besides those two stories recorded, everything else has Jesus present in it. In the introduction, the first thing Mark does is show his readers that Jesus was foretold by John the Baptist. But he goes back even a bit further and says, John the Baptist was foretold by the Old Testament. Mark actually uses a Jewish technique in verses 2 and 3 that blends scriptures together. He blends three biblical texts together, and he quotes from Exodus 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah 43. And you can read those with me along on the screen. Exodus 23.20 reads, 
Behold, I send an angel or messenger before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Isaiah 43, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Mark takes these three scriptures and what he's doing is blending them together. He's confirming, by doing this, he's confirming that the law, the major prophets, and the minor prophets all give evidence that a messenger was coming to prepare the way for Jesus. Now as you're reading that, you might ask yourself, why did he just mention Isaiah and not the others? Well, this blending technique that Mark uses was very familiar to his readers, very familiar to, to the Jewish population specifically. And you see, it was not a practice back then to cite all your sources as it is today. So Mark picks one, and he probably picked Isaiah because Isaiah's quote refers to the one crying in the desert, and that's exactly where he goes next in the verse 4. Join me in verse 4. John appeared. A baptizing, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist, it's safe to say, was a unique individual. I've already mentioned that he was prophesied in the Old Testament. And you may remember, we just talked about this a few weeks ago, he was also foretold by the angel Gabriel to his father Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. His mother Elizabeth, we're also told in Luke chapter 1, was related to Jesus' mother Mary. So we can conclude that Jesus and John were related, though we're not exactly sure how. You may have heard that they were cousins, but we really don't know how they were related. They may have been cousins, second cousins, 14th cousins, 86 times removed. We have no idea. We do know that John was specifically selected by God to be the forerunner. He was to announce the Messiah was coming. See, in ancient times, an envoy would arrive ahead of the king and announce the king's arrival to wherever the king was going. That's what John was. He was the envoy to the king, King Jesus. Now, his description is a little odd. Verse 6 tells us he was, clothed with, he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. You may have seen pictures depicted of John the Baptist, and he kind of looks like a wild man. Why did Mark include his attire and his diet? Well, one possible answer is the connection between John the Baptist and Elijah the prophet. In 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah is described as wearing a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Now, this was significant because John the Baptist was described by angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 as having come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So there is a connection between Elijah and John the Baptist. Now, his diet, locusts and wild honey, that was a very clean food, according to Leviticus eleven twenty nine through 38. So what that might signify is he may have also been a Nazarite, a Nazarite like Samson who had vowed to God his whole life was meant to be a holy man for the work of the Lord. 
John's ministry comprised of teaching and baptizing. The text tells us in verse 5 that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, what's going on here? Why are people confessing their sins? Why is John baptizing? Remember what I just said, that John was a forerunner, the envoy to the coming Messiah. When When a king was coming, the people got ready. There's a show that Heather and I likes to, like to watch sometimes, and in this particular episode, it takes place in early 20th century in England, and the king of England is coming for a visit. And the people of this particular area, they get ready. They get ready. They polish and repolish the silver. They make the beds and the bedrooms look just perfect. They pull out all the stops for dinner. They're preparing for the king. John the Baptist announces the coming Messiah, and the people, at least those who were truly listening, they get ready. And part of getting ready was to confess their sins and to commit to holy living through the act of baptism. That's what was going on there. It should be noted, there is a little bit of a difference between John's baptism and the baptism that we do today. See, John's baptism was, he was baptizing people as a way of preparing them for the coming Messiah. We baptize as a sign of what Christ has already done in the hearts. Not only was John baptizing, but he was also proclaiming a message. Look at verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. As the forerunner, this is John's message. It's not about himself. He says, one is coming mightier than I. No doubt, John was probably a compelling teacher. He was a holy man of God. Doubtless, people looked up to him. But you see, John's might could not compare with the one who was to come. Jesus is mightier. Jesus is holier. Jesus is far more powerful, so much so that John feels unworthy to untie his sandals. That was the most menial task of a servant. If that was your job to untie your master's sandals, that was the most menial task. And John is saying, I'm not worthy to do the most menial of tasks to the one who is to come. Think about that when we talk about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, water baptism is merely a symbol. It symbolizes Only what the Holy Spirit can actually do, which is cleanse us from sins, change our hearts, and penetrate the depths of sin and guilt and make us new. Water baptism doesn't compare with the work that Jesus is coming to do. That's what he's saying there. Now, what is meant by being baptized with the Holy Spirit? This could be a reference to the coming Holy Spirit that we see at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. I'm sure that's where most of your minds immediately went. But it could also mean something else. It could be a reference that Jesus himself serves in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And I think that is more accurate because we see in the next set of scriptures the Holy Spirit coming and descending upon Jesus. Now, before I leave this topic, I want to address something. You may have heard of a doctrinal teaching called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's not what John's talking about here. In this teaching, saved people, people who already believe in Jesus, are taught that they need to receive the Holy Spirit a separate time, a different time from their conversion. And those who believe this way, they see this baptism of the Holy Spirit as an empowering idea for ministry. We here at Harvest don't believe that. We don't believe in a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believe the Holy Spirit comes at conversion. When a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we believe the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside them, and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not a separate thing. And one scriptural evidence for this is in Ephesians 1, 13-14. You can see this on the screen. Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it to the praise of his glory. We are given the Holy Spirit at the moment we place our faith in Christ. That's what we believe. Just, just for an extra bit of clarity on where we as a church stand on this issue, I want to quote our doctrinal statement concerning the Holy Spirit. You can find this on our website. It goes like this. We believe in the total deity of the Holy Spirit and that his ministry is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, John 16, 14. The Holy Spirit regenerates the sinner upon belief in Christ, baptizing the believer into one body of which Christ is the head. The Holy Spirit indwells, guides, instructs, fills, comforts, and empowers the believer for godly living. Mark 13, 11, John 14, 26, John 16, 13, Romans 5, 5, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of God's righteousness, and of coming judgment, John 16, 8 through 11. That's a summary of what we here at Harvest believe. Now, if you believe differently, if you do believe in a baptism of the Holy Spirit apart from conversion, that's not a deal breaker for you attending our church. We want you to be here, absolutely. I simply want to be clear on where we stand as a church. Now back to John's ministry. John states that Jesus is so mighty, he is not worthy to untie his shoe. That's how mighty Jesus is. In John's relationship with Jesus, he clearly saw himself as subordinate. So let me ask, how do you see yourself in relationship to Jesus? Do you consider yourself unworthy to stoop down and untie Jesus' shoe? Do you recognize your proper place in relation to Jesus Christ? Or do you resort to pride and arrogance expecting Jesus to do all your bidding? He is the king. We are the servants. He is strong. We are weak. He is the authority. We are subservient. That does not diminish his love. That's the mere truth. We should remember well our place. And let me remind you, being called a child of God is a joy. 
It is an undeserved privilege, and we should relish in it, but we have no right to make demands of Jesus. We have no right to insist on our own way. Our demeanor before our Lord should always be one of reverence and respect. So let me remind you, we're talking about testimonies to the identity of Jesus Christ. The first one we saw is the ministry of John the Baptist. The second testimony to the ministry of Jesus Christ we see from our text is the declaration of the Father. Point two, the declaration of God the Father. Follow along as I read verse nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. While John the Baptist was ministering, Jesus arrives on the scene. He comes from Nazareth, which is in the region of Galilee, and that's in the northern part of Israel. Though Jesus, you remember, we just talked about this, was born in Bethlehem, the southern part of Israel. His home was in Galilee, and this is the area that Jesus does most of his ministry. As we work through the book of Mark, we're going to remain, for the most part, in Galilee. Now, the Jordan River here is in two sections. There's a north section and a south section, an upper section and a lower section. The upper section runs into the Sea of Galilee, and the lower section runs from the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea. Matthew actually tells us that Jesus was baptized in the wilderness of Judea, and John's Gospel tells us specifically that Jesus was baptized in Bethany across the Jordan, which is east, which is, I'm sorry, in the lower part of the Jordan River, and is east of the Jordan. See, there were actually two towns called Bethany. I know, even in biblical times. There's always like a Jacksonville in one state in America. There's two towns called Bethany. One was located near Jerusalem, and one was east of the Jordan, and that's where we are when Jesus is baptized. Jesus is baptized, and he comes up out of the water, and he sees the heavens being torn open. That's very descriptive. In fact, it's just one word in the Greek, and it has this idea of dividing in two, this idea of splitting. It's actually the same word used in Matthew 27, 51 to describe the splitting of the veil in the temple when Jesus breathes his last. One commentator points out the significance of the splitting by saying that there were three people in the Old Testament who parted the Jordan River. Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha. And each time, the parting of the Jordan River was a testimony to their power, or more accurately, to the power of God working through them. When Jesus comes to the Jordan, he doesn't split the Jordan, but the skies split. The power of God has come in a greater way than splitting the Jordan. Isaiah, in Isaiah 41, 40, or 64, 1, says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's exactly what's happening here in Mark. The heavens are rent. The Spirit descends on Jesus and his ministry begins. Jesus' ministry begins with the splitting of the heavens and it ends with the splitting of the veil. The Spirit descends on him. Now, what's that all about? This was predicted, of course, in Isaiah chapters 11, 42, and 61, that the Holy Spirit would rest upon the Messiah. 
So this is fulfillment of prophecy, yes. But it's also Jesus' commission for special service. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would only come to specific individuals at specific times for specific services. Jesus performed his earthly ministry under the power of the Holy Spirit. And you might wonder, why does Jesus need the Holy Spirit? Isn't Jesus God? And the answer to that is absolutely. Yes, he is. But remember, Jesus laid aside his divine attributes. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2. So instead of operating out of his own divine power, Jesus continually relied on the Holy Spirit all through his ministry. Now note something here. When Mark says the Spirit descended on him like a dove, don't think that means the Holy Spirit looks like a bird. That's not what he's saying. Mark is using a simile to describe the Spirit's descent, not the Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit moves gracefully down upon Jesus. That's what he's saying. Not ferociously like an eagle, but elegantly like a dove. Finally, God the Father speaks here and he says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God calls Jesus his Son. We talked about this earlier, the relation between Father and Son. This declaration, this is a declaration of Jesus' divinity. By tearing open the heavens, sending the Spirit, and proclaiming Jesus as God's own Son, the Father makes it abundantly clear who Jesus is. He is the divine Messiah. He is the chosen one. He is God himself in human flesh. Now, two things I want to point out here by way of application. One, the same Spirit that came and rested on Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that you have if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. We are indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. Now, unlike Jesus, you and I can grieve the Spirit. You and I can quench the Spirit. You and I can choose to disregard His gentle guidance. And I would go so far to say we do that every day. So let me ask then, how might you be doing that? How might that be a habit in your life? What area of your life might you be grieving or quenching the spirit who's trying to work in you? How are you resisting? And how can you surrender to his work? The second point of application I want to point out is this. God calls Jesus his son. For those who've put their trust in Jesus, he declares the same to them. 1 John 3, 1 reads, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, you are his child. He loves you. He cares for you. And he will protect you. Even though at times in this chaotic life, it may not feel like it, you are God's child. And I say that just to encourage you to take comfort. So we have seen two testimonies that attest to the identity of Jesus, the ministry of John the Baptist and the declaration of God the Father. Lastly, the last testimony that attests to the identity of Jesus, let's look at the confrontation with the enemy. Your point, third point, the confrontation of the enemy. Look at verse 12 with me. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. 
And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, if you've read Matthew's account and Luke's account, you'll know right away that this is a very brief description of Jesus' temptation. Thus, that was Mark's way of writing. Here, Mark touches on it briefly, but I do want to point out a couple things. First of all, notice the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. He receives the Holy Spirit, and the first thing that happens is the Spirit drives him out in the wilderness. He is immediately obedient, immediately submissive to what the Spirit is doing. We know, from, we know that he's in the wilderness for 40 days. And we see here that he's being tempted that time by Satan, which is suggestive that the temptation may have been more than just the three times that we see from Matthew's and Luke's account. Now let's look at the last part of verse 13. There's a couple of strange things here. It says he was with the wild animals and angels were ministering to him. What's going on there? Mark is the only gospel to mention that Jesus was with wild animals. Why did he mention the the beasts? I think the best interpretation of this is that Mark was pointing out that Jesus was in a dangerous environment during this time. There are three dangers actually listed here. Jesus was driven into the wilderness. That was dangerous enough. If you think about the exposure to the elements, you think about not having food readily available. He He was in close proximity with wild animals, which is another danger. And he was being viciously tempted by Satan for 40 days. In addition to that, we know from Matthew's account that Jesus had fasted during that 40 days. That's a practice that would have left him extremely weak. The short of it, Jesus was in a dangerous place both physically and spiritually. Why? Again, we're making it clear who Jesus is. You and I could not have defeated Satan on our best of days in this circumstance. But Jesus is victorious over Satan at his worst of moments, at his weakest moments. The author, John MacArthur, points this out. As the royal and divine son, he had to face and conquer his strongest enemy even when he was at his weakest. Jesus is weak and yet victorious. This confrontation with Satan is really Jesus' first battle against spiritual forces. And we know from the other accounts, though Mark doesn't say it specifically, we know from the other accounts that he is victorious, and we can assume from Mark's account that Jesus is victorious, or everything that Mark is writing about Jesus is completely meaningless. Jesus was victorious over the dangers he faced in the wilderness, specifically Satan's temptation. Again, evidence to who Jesus Christ is. He is who he said he was, or he would not have been victorious over the devil's temptations. Now that last phrase, and the angels were ministering to him, that's just simply suggestive that God did not leave Jesus completely on his own. That the Father took care of his son through the agency of angels. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but somehow angels cared for him. The focus is is on Jesus. The focus is on Jesus being in the wilderness, surrounded by dangers, and ultimately being tempted by Satan, but being victorious. He passed the test where you and I would have utterly failed.
He didn't give in to the fear over the dangers, and he certainly didn't give in to the temptations of the enemy. Jesus was victorious, even in such a weakened state. And because Jesus had been victorious over his enemy, you and I can experience that same victory as well. Because our Savior refused to comfort himself, but chose rather to depend fully on the Spirit, so you and I can win those same battles. When faced with temptation, when faced with the choice to trust ourselves, we can rather turn to Christ and trust his strength above our own. So I would ask, how do you need to do that in 2023? This is the gospel, the good news. Jesus is who he said he is, amen? There is unquestionable testimony to that. The ministry of John the Baptist, the declaration of God the Father, and the confrontation of the enemy are just three testimonies to the identity of Jesus Christ. Your Savior is divine. He is God. He has authority over this life, and he served, suffered, willingly, victoriously, so that you and I can share in his victory. He truly is the divine servant. Pray with me. Sovereign Jesus, holy, righteous God, be honored, be praised, be glorified. You are God. You are not some mere prophet, some great teacher, or some angelic being. You are God. You came in the flesh and lived among us. You took on our weakness, experienced pain and suffering, and even rejection by your own Father on the cross. Why? Because you love us. You did not leave us abandoned but did the work we could not have done. Thank you, Jesus. Teach us to depend on you as you depended on the Holy Spirit. Show us the areas of our lives that need to be placed in your hands. Grow us this year. Teach us this year. And let this new year be a year of spiritual change in all of our lives. May we look back at the end of 2023 and praise your name for the change you brought in each of us. We pray this in the great and awesome name of Jesus. Amen.